Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week on Crypto Unstacked, we chat with Matt Yamamoto, research analyst at Coindesk. Matt and I go all in chatting about his work building up Coindesk's institutional research arm and his goal to cover research for all publicly listed crypto companies. We talk about why mining companies decide to go public and focus our conversation around one Canadian mining company called HUT8. Matt gives his take on HUT8's credit exposure, accounting practices, and plans to scale for the long term. It was really interesting to learn more about a part of the mining ecosystem that doesn't get much coverage. So super appreciate Matt for coming on the show to share his insights. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, Matt. Thanks for coming on Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Before we get started talking about your research at Coindesk and all the great things you're doing there, it'd be great if you can share more about your background and path to crypto. I worked in equity research at a company called DA Davidson. I did that for a, a two and a half years. Initially started covering banks and then moved over to e-commerce. Around late 2017, I started covering a company called Overstock. Around that time, they were doing an STO. So that was a lot of fun to cover. And that that's kind of like my intro to crypto. I didn't know anything about crypto before that. But then after covering Overstock, I was just hooked. So eventually I wanted to work in crypto full time. I uh, worked my way over to the block, being a research analyst there. And eventually uh, I worked my way over to Coindesk. Great. And I'm, I'm super curious, did you request to cover Overstock at DA Davidson or, or was that company assigned to you by chance? It was purely by chance. I know anything about them, but it was probably the most fun experience I had my whole duration I was there. What was interesting covering STOs at that time? This was late 2017, you said, right? So sort of crypto was blowing up all over the place. And I know the STO narrative was also going strong at that time. So what was interesting about what Overstock was doing? Right. Yeah. So Overstock, they were doing their STO with the T0. They were one of the only stocks out there that had a strong crypto presence and their stock price was just going up astronomically. At the time, we we're the only people on the street who covered Overstock. Anyone who was kind of interested in crypto that was also involved with the equity markets, they came to us. So for a lot of my time when I was covering e-commerce, it was basically just talking about Overstock and researching Overstock. And that was a lot of fun. Just all, all the volatility, all the excitement there. 
Awesome. You had mentioned when we were prepping for this conversation that there was, I think, another analyst or head of your equity department at DA Davidson who had already been interested in crypto, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, my director of research, uh, his name is Gil Luria. Interesting fact about him is that he used to be equity analyst at a company called Wedbush. I forget the year exactly. I want to say it was 2014 or 2015. He was one of the first guys on sell-side equity research to cover GBTC, Brayscale Bitcoin Investment Trust. He put a price target on Bitcoin, and I think he valued it something like 2x of what it was. I forget what price was at the time, maybe like 20 bucks, and he valued it at 40 bucks, I want to say. He was really one of the big inspiring factors in me getting into crypto. He's actually mentioned in the digital gold book for like a few seconds <laughs> that was kind of cool when I, when I was listening to the, the audio book for that and then his name popped up it was like whoa Gil's famous I with that guy nice nice you know it's, it's clear that you have a passion for equity research or at least are extremely interested in this part of the ecosystem how does crypto research stack up to the work that you are doing on the traditional equity research side? I think part of the reason I wanted to get into crypto is because I saw that there really wasn't that much research within the crypto industry. So I felt like there was a market there, something that like a void that I could fulfill. What I see from crypto research currently, it's mostly data-driven looking at exchange volumes, on-chain metrics. There's also a lot of macro-focused content, kind of looking at big picture, maybe DeFi, maybe mining. But there's really not too much like bottom-up fundamental analysis looking at individual companies and their financials. And I think that's kind of the void I, I fulfill. Looking at the crypto research side, there isn't necessarily a Thomas Reuters or FactSet sort of sell-side research database that you can just pull from and compare companies. Like you're the one writing the reports for public Bitcoin mining companies. And I think, you know, that's super important to building a foundation for an institutional grade research hub. Totally agree. Yeah, there's not too much research out there directed towards institutional investors that can do deep dives on financial analysis. It's, it's something that's really important that we need to have in order to attract that institutional investor base. And a few months ago, you mentioned you left the block for Coindesk, which is a competitor news outlet. And as, as we all know, Coindesk is a staple in the crypto industry. You mentioned that the company is now paying more attention to the institutional market and building out a more robust research to cater to institutional investors. So can you go more in depth about your coverage in this new role and how, how your experience as a research analyst at the block prime view for this current role? Sure. Yeah. Like uh, what I do right now at Coindesk, uh, my goal is to eventually cover all the crypto companies that are publicly listed. I think there's probably about maybe a little less than a dozen, uh, most of them being miners. What I learned most at the block, really kind of understanding who the important players were, uh, what the important metrics to look at. There, there's a lot of noise out there. And what the block taught me was how to filter that and know who was important, who I should be speaking to, what I should be looking at. That was a really great learning experience. If you're outside of crypto, that's hard to get. Yeah, absolutely. And what are some reasons that crypto mining companies decide to go public. You just mentioned that most of the companies that are public right now within crypto 
are Bitcoin mining companies. Can you talk a bit about the motivation for these guys to go from being private to public? I think there's a few reasons. I think one is access to capital. The second being increased publicity. I think there's maybe about eight-ish publicly traded mining companies. A lot of them went public or did reverse mergers around late 2017, early 2018. Around that time, there was a lot of speculation into mining. They were able to raise a fair bit amount of money at that time. So going public or doing reverse mergers was fairly attractive. And what are some of the more interesting companies that have gone public? I think out of the miners, they're the most notable to me. There's HUD8, there's BitFarms, there's Argo Blockchain. But then you also have a few other names that are outside of mining. Uh, you have Silvergate, uh, Silvergate mm -hmm. Bank. Uh, you also have Canon, uh, mining, a Bitcoin mining manufacturer that went public, I believe, in November. Um, so you have a few players in there to work with. Got it, got it. And researching all of these companies, what would you say are some of the struggles that these crypto companies face? Um, I think the struggles... Probably, uh, one, they have to deal with SEC regulations, the disclosures, just the public scrutiny. The thing with most crypto companies is they're all private. They can control what goes out there and what doesn't. But with publicly traded companies, they have to give a fair representation uh, for investors. So you really get more of a, a, a the full picture, the risks involved, the major headwinds, and not just one side of the story. Right, right. So let's dive in now into the land of these public crypto mining companies. You've said before that exploring the filings of publicly traded mining companies can help to uncover greater details about the industry that would otherwise be opaque, right, and, and not right. known to the public. And one of these very, very interesting companies that you covered in depth at Coindesk is HUD8, which is one of Canada's largest Bitcoin mining companies. And just a brief background for our, our listeners, and you can add in where I've left some gaps. They began operations in late 2017 with an exclusive partnership with Bitfury as the so-called proxy for Bitfury in North America. And they were listed on the TSX Venture Exchange in March of 2018, and began trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange on October 8th, 2019. And a lot has happened since the listing. Can you give us a quick rundown on the current state of HUD8? Yeah, sure. So since they went public on the TSX, I think they've been upgraded to the, the larger exchange. Um, what's not most notable is that they've ran into a few problems. Like you had mentioned, they, they had started uh, operations with close ties with Bitfury. All their equipment and all their facilities were bought from Bitfury. The reason for that being is because they had an exclusive partnership where they were obligated to buy from them. The problem with that is, is that as of late, there are much more efficient mining ASIC miners out there. So the equipment that HUD-8 has on hand is having trouble competing with what else is out there. What else is noteworthy is that HUD-8 has a considerable amount of high interest rate debt. Uh, and that debt requires a significant amount of, of Bitcoin collateral. Um, so they have to pay these, these high interest rate debt payments. Most of their capital is locked away in those loans and they have decreasing margins from their 
uh, inefficient mining equipment. So they're, they're really struggling right now. We'll talk about the credit exposure in just a bit because I agree and find those relationships very interesting with other third-party lenders. Let's talk about first the financial health of Hade. You alluded to this just now. Can you take us through some interesting highlights from their income statement? Sure. So with the income statement, within the past year, they really haven't made too many significant CapEx upgrades to their equipment. So their max capacity of hash rate has stayed relatively the same. Um, so the real major factors affecting its its sales is the Bitcoin price and the change in, the, in their overall Bitcoin network hash rate. Um, and what we've seen over the past year is that Revenue has declined quite a bit as the Bitcoin network hash rate has gone up. It's gone to the point where EBITDA margins have gone from, I forget where they were. They're pretty substantial, but now they're close to break even. Right. Now pivoting to the credit exposure side, as of Q4 2019, you wrote that HUD-8 had roughly in Canadian dollars, $27 million in loans payable from BitFury and Genesis Lending. And by the end of Q4 2019, 58% was locked in collateral, right? Through a loan with Genesis Capital. I forget what rate it was. I I think it must have been the high nines, nine nine or 10%, somewhere around there, with quite high loan to value ratio as well. Mm -hmm. Could you talk more about their reasoning for, you know, opening these lines of credit in the first place and why it's necessary for a mining company to have these financing channels? The loan was originally with Galaxy Digital, and I believe they they used that loan to buy more equipment at the time. Uh, Since then, they've refinanced with Genesis, and I think they got a slightly better interest rate with Genesis, which is why they switched. But it's really important for these mining companies to get access to capital. I I think a lot of lenders and a lot of investors think of these mining companies as high-risk investments. And I, I wouldn't say they're incorrect in, in thinking that, but because of that, it's it's hard for them to get access to the capital. So when they do take out these loans, it generally requires high collateral uh, and high interest payments. So that's kind of the line of thinking there. Yeah. And mining companies are very capital intensive as it is, right? Just for the operational setup and securing the power contracts. Um, and, and when you talk about you know, public company, all of this is put under a spotlight in terms of how funds are allocated, right? And then their, their credit exposure um, is, is also known to the public. So if they're not paying off a loan that is due or they're refinancing for a certain reason, that's all under scrutiny. On this point, you know, HUD-A didn't pay off their initial BitFury loan. They say that they believe their returns on digital assets, uh, specifically Bitcoin in this case, would outperform the interest rate on debt. And you you wrote that the company is essentially making a levered bet on Bitcoin prices going higher. And you know, HUD-8 known for their value proposition, which is its exposure to Bitcoin prices through their large inventory of Bitcoin on the balance sheet. The former CEO, Andrew Pugel, mentioned during the Q4 earnings call that HUD-8 is, quote, an alternative to going and buying Bitcoin 
And, and so that's why they want to hold as much as they can. And, and they think that over time, despite the volatility, the price of Bitcoin will continue to appreciate. That's a really bullish statement on the future of Bitcoin. So what's your opinion about their approach here and their levered speculative strategy around Bitcoin? Yeah, well, it's, uh, they're obviously very bullish on the price of Bitcoin. Uh, the thing is with holding a fair amount of Bitcoin on your balance sheet is that it exposes you to a lot of price risk. If you look at the income statement, its revenue uh, is directly tied to Bitcoin price because if Bitcoin price goes higher, they can sell their Bitcoin and get more revenue. And then if you look at their balance sheet, if they hold a lot of Bitcoin on their, on their, on their balance sheet, if, that, if the price goes down, so is the value of their assets. So you have a lot of exposure as an investor to price fluctuations. And when you take out loans to further that cause, then you just have a levered bet. So obviously, HUD-8 is bullish. Otherwise, they on, on Bitcoin prices going up higher. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be doing that. Right. Yeah. And I guess in, in the sense, they don't have a mandate for needing to sell methodically over a period of time, because I know some companies do, and these companies aren't public. And you know some are more conservative while others and a lot of them in Asia, for example, are much more comfortable taking a speculative position, playing the market, as they say, as opposed to selling off their inventory of Bitcoin on a consistent basis. Right. I think another point, important point to look at is that if you look at the balance sheet, basically 90% of the assets is uh, either directly tied to the Bitcoin price because they have Bitcoin directly on their balance sheet, um, but they also, another major component of their assets is their equipment. Its value is tied to the Bitcoin price as well. If Bitcoin price mm -hmm. goes down, that causes miners to go out of business. Those assets that they have, those miners, they're going to have to sell those miners at, at much lower costs than they, than they previously were. So there's even more risk there than, than meets the eye. That's when the more established players with a larger balance sheet of cash uh, are, are waiting, right? Waiting for the weaker hands to get washed out of the market to then scoop up these mm -hmm. uh, equipments. Have you actually heard anything around how they think about the procurement of new equipment, given that a lot of them are, or a lot of the manufacturers are based in Asia and HUD-8 is based in Canada? And so how do they manage the procurement of equipment from abroad, especially during a time like this when the supply chain, uh, you know, isn't necessarily the fastest or running the smoothest. Right. I think, well, historically, they've bought all their equipment from Bitfury. Bitfury calls them block boxes, which are these CCAN containers that, that have a bunch of these mining servers in them. One of the appeals of having these CCAN containers made by Bitfury is that it's really easy to maintain, at least that's what they say. And to upgrade, they just have to take out some of the boards, I, I think it is. They have that exclusive agreement with Bitfury. They've since gotten out of that because they want to look into purchasing equipment from other manufacturers. They mentioned on the call, they're, they're speaking with Bitmain, they're speaking with MicroVT. They're now looking into purchasing equipment from these Chinese manufacturers. And I think on the call, they said they're, they're having a bit of issues. They were having a bit of issues with COVID creating delays uh, in shipment, but I'm not really sure what the, the situation is to date. And talking about hardware infrastructure, 
there's an angle to to looking at the income statement, which is understanding how they record impairments, right, on assets and two different types of assets that you mentioned uh, in your research are infrastructure and servers. Can you talk a bit about how their approach to recording impairments on these assets has had an impact on their income statement? Right. So with accounting and mining companies, there's really no established accounting procedures. Uh, So when it comes to um, impairment, there's a few factors that they they have to take into account. Um, And it's all just based off estimates. It's purely based off management estimates. They're they're looking at, they're estimating what the Bitcoin price is going to be, what the network cash rate is going to be, and what the discount rate they should apply to try to predict what the payout of its miners will be in the future. And based off that estimate, they uh, write an impairment on their existing equipment uh, if it's if it's lower than what they bought it at. So it's, there's a lot of speculation there. Uh, they can really, based off their estimates, fi- justify any sort of impairment they want. But in, in the sense of HUD-8, they have two separate categories of equipment. They have the infrastructure which is the CCAN containers, and they also have the uh, mining servers. Uh, and in, two, in their fourth quarter of 2019, uh, they switched the impairment over from their mining servers over to the CCAN containers, um, which ultimately led to a large increase in their depreciation for fourth quarter. Interesting. And can you dive in deeper on the non-standard practice of these public mining companies toward accounting? How exactly does the accounting differ from one mining company to another? Perhaps can you give an example pairing HUD-8 with another public mining company? I've researched a few of these mining companies now. I've looked at HUD-8, I looked at BitFarms, I've looked at Argo. And one thing I find pretty interesting is that there really is no set accounting standards across the board. Um, you look at pretty much any line item and it could be recognized totally different. Um, for example, uh, even revenue uh, with HUD-8, uh, they recognize revenue when they mine the Bitcoin. But for another company like BitFarms, they recognize revenue when they convert that Bitcoin to fiat. When you're trying to compare companies apples to apples, it, it is just not it's not the same because in the case of BitFarms, they can just hold on to their Bitcoin and sell in a future quarter and they can recognize more uh, revenue then. It, it, there's a lot of discrepancy there. Uh, I think the main line items that have a lot of uh, discrepancy is revenue, depreciation, impairments. A lot of companies, they, they have a metric called cost per Bitcoin. And there's a lot of discrepancy there too, because some companies, it's just a cost of electricity. And for others, it's the total cost of managing the site. It's very hard looking at different mining companies. You have to look into the disclosures to know what the metrics mean. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. 
That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P dot I-O. Matt, on May 11th, HUD-8 reported their Q1 2020 earnings, which you claim is less than stellar. In other words, there were no positive surprises. What were some of the highlights from this most recent earnings report? Well, the reason I said there was no surprises is because they had just reported 4Q19s back in April. They moved up their first quarter earnings for 2020 up by, I would say, two months. So I thought they were going to have some good news. I thought they were excited to, to release something that they wanted to get out there. Um, but when the earnings came, there there really was nothing noteworthy. The EBITDA margin had gone slightly negative. It went from, I want to say like positive 15 to negative 4% margin, which is kind of what we expected. They hadn't made any upgrades to their equipment. They were still trying to look for capital so they could upgrade their equipment. And what's also notable is that their CEO, Andrew Keigel, I'm going to butcher his name. He had played a pretty significant role in the company's initial startup. He was kind of the guy, he had an investment banking background and he was the guy who was a big part in their in their initial raise. And then he announced, I believe in January, that he was going to step down from his role as CEO, but that he would stay on, on uh, the role as CEO until they found a replacement. But then he stepped down and right before the, the 1Q20 earnings call, but the company didn't have a replacement. So that was kind of strange. Have they found someone else? Is anyone being primed for this position or are they leaderless at this point? Well, they have their CFO, I believe, is is currently filling the role interim CEO. The management team has hinted that they're close to finding somebody. But I think it's been a few weeks since the, the 1Q earnings and they still haven't made an announcement. So they mentioned it might be COVID related, just causing some headwinds. But I don't know, there might be some deeper rooted issues there. Right, right. A fact that I learned actually going back to the point that we talked about earlier, which is their levered speculative strategy towards Bitcoin, they have a practice of not selling Bitcoin on a daily basis. And I guess it makes sense based on what we talked about earlier. Um, You know, Andrew mentioned during the call that they always try to time it by it. I think he means the Bitcoin price pretty well. Um, And he said that, you know, the the Bitcoin that they didn't sell or, um, you know, the the Bitcoin that they sold at one point um, or another during a certain quarter, It all depends on their financing needs and that, you know, if there is no need for financing, then they're basically going to just keep it on their balance sheet. So basically to minimize the amount of Bitcoin that they have to sell. So given what we know about the financial health of their company, and as you just said, their revenue has declined, and I think it's for the third consecutive quarter now, is market timing a prudent portfolio management strategy for a company like theirs? Certainly not. It's definitely not prudent. It can be a tool that companies can use to generate more alpha in terms of market timing. But if a company is doing that, they're basically taking on the role of money manager at that point. So 
if you're looking at it from an investment standpoint, from an outside investment standpoint, like if you invest into a mining company that is doing market timing, uh, you not only have to worry about the risks uh, mining a typical mining operation, but you're also having to worry about the risks. Like, are these guys going to manage my Bitcoin portfolio or my my assets properly? It creates extra headwinds there, but it can lead to additional upside if done well. You mentioned that the number of Bitcoin on their balance sheet from this past quarter remained flat, right? So it hasn't gone down all that much and it certainly hasn't increased over this past quarter. Why is that? Well, their margins are shrinking. The amount of Bitcoin that they're mining has has gone down considerably and their operation expenses have pretty much stayed the same. So uh, because the mar- margins have shrunken so much to basically around break even, they're having to sell all the Bitcoin that they've mined to pay off operating expenses, which is why their their Bitcoin balance has stayed essentially the same since the past quarter. Mm-hmm. A large portion of the Bitcoin is also locked in the secured loans, right, that we talked about earlier. Um, and now with this new loan mm-hmm. with Genesis Capital, how much of the, the Bitcoin is uh, locked now. I think it, it was around 50%, right, in, in the previous quarter. Right. It was around 50% and it went up to slightly above 90. I forget the exact percentage. Wow. Yeah, the, the loan they had with Bitfury originally, it was unsecured. It was at a slightly higher interest rate of 12% instead of 10%. But with Genesis, they required a little bit more Bitcoin than they, they had previously, than Genesis had previously. That led to Hade basically having almost all of its Bitcoin held in collateral. Wow, that's that's really fascinating. Honestly, like it, you know, this might also be the case for some private companies, but hey, we'll never know. So I find like Hade super interesting as a case study, looking at a mining company and seeing how it performs over market cycles. This just gives me at least an idea of how newer mining companies, you know, might approach this same scenario. But of course, 2020 is an anomaly in and of itself. So I, I kind of feel for HUD-8. It's just like a series of back-to-back unfortunate situations, at least with the, you know, Bitcoin price and, and of course, operational challenges as well. Right. I think, yeah, there, like you said, there's a lot of takeaways here. There's, there's probably a lot of companies out there facing similar problems, like having trouble accessing capital, those with loans paying high interest rates is not just HUD-8. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a lot we can take away here from a, from a bigger picture standpoint. And we, we talked earlier about their equipment upgrade and the need to do that to stay profitable after the reward halving that we just saw back in March. And, you know, they've reiterated during the call that they do have an interest to upgrade to more efficient equipment from the likes of Bitmain and MicroBT, as you said, instead of scaling up by acquiring more land, as there's a lot of costs associated with doing that, right? They already have access to, I think, about 109 megawatts. Andrew mentioned that the company's goal is to actually scale from within. A hardware upgrade is definitely a key component to doing that. So given what we know about the company, how do they expect to fund this hardware upgrade? They talked a bit about it on the call. There's three separate, from, from my understanding, there's three options. Um, one is hosting. Uh, they can have people buy the equipment 
uh, they facilitate it at the, or they manage it and facilitate it at their facilities. Um, but they said on the call that they really haven't gotten any considerable uh, requests for that. So that may be off the table. So that leaves the other two options, which is they can raise funds through equity or they can raise funds through debt. Um, the problem with raising through debt is there's not too many lenders out there with the appetite for, for lending to minors. There's, there's maybe a select few, but uh, when you go that route, you, you do have to pay off your loans. You do have to pay interest rates and you have to lock up collateral. But if we look at the mm -hmm. equity side of things, the company can try to raise money through equity, but the downside there is that they dilute their existing shareholders. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a give and take there. But the thing with, with debt is that after the whole Bitcoin price going down on March 12th, there was a lot of lenders out there that they kind of pulled back from generating new loans. Genesis Capital was one of them, which is HUD-8's major lender. In my own opinion, I think HUD-8 is going to have issues raising raising through debt. But on the call, they said the they plan is to, to raise through a combination of equity and debt. Interesting. And on the flip side, let's now talk about the manufacturers and what the halving means for them. In an article you wrote last year about your mining predictions for 2020, you wrote that, quote, with industry revenue being reduced, so will the demand for mining equipment. Manufacturers will decrease prices, leading to a contraction of margins. Also, manufacturers with large amounts, um, accounts receivable by credit sales of older equipment will likely face further write-offs as many customers will fail to make payments, end quote. So are you seeing examples of this situation being played out right now amongst the larger Bitcoin manufacturers, Bitcoin mining manufacturers? Yeah, you can you can certainly see it, it, it coming into play. Um, we don't have any numbers like post having, um, but we can already see that there's probably some consolidation going on. Obviously, the biggest players right now uh, is Bitmain and MicroBT, but there are public filings out there for other players like Canon and now eBang, which is trying to IPO in the mm -hmm. US. And if you look at the financials for Canon and, and eBang, they just had very significant losses in 2019. Their sales had pulled back quite a bit. If I had to guess, I would assume market share to Bitmain and MicroBT uh, has expanded. And if I had to guess, I think these smaller players like Canon, eBang, Inosilicon, I think they're going to struggle post-having with basically the pie being drastically reduced. Yeah. And let's talk about eBang, actually, which is another crypto mining company that filed to go public in the U.S. in April of this year. And this isn't the first time the company has tried going public. What do you know about their motivation to go public this time around? There was a lot of, I think there was three co companies that tried to go public in Hong Kong, or three different Bitcoin mining manufacturers that tried to go public in, in Hong Kong. Uh, it was uh, Bitmain, it was Canon, uh, and it was eBay. And all three of them failed. Canon uh, later... Uh, applied to go public in the US and that was successful. It went through in November, they raised 90 million. And now eBang is trying to go public uh, with the goal of fundraising 100 million, I believe. 
I, I was looking through their filings and there's just a lot of interesting takes in there. They seem to be embroiled in a number of internal legal disputes, unfortunately. And as you've said, you know, their market position trails the larger Bitcoin mining manufacturers. You know, going public, I don't think solve these problems. If anything, these are undeniable headwinds that they have to keep on fighting through this listing process. So I'm not sure. I mean, they might find themselves in the position that Kanan is currently in. Actually, as an equity analyst, you know, you're in the business of giving your professional sentiment on public companies. So I'll turn the question back to you. Do you think they'll manage to list successfully, you know, raise enough capital to boost their competitive advantage and compete against other mining giants? I think they're going to struggle. I think we're already hearing rumors that NASDAQ is tightening its listing standards. We've seen like a fair amount of counting fraud when it comes to these Chinese companies that IPO in the US and and the NASDAQ's kind of trying to, to rein in on that. So they may struggle to get past the approval there. But even if they do, just from what we've seen from past uh, IPOs in the US from Chinese companies is that they oftentimes don't raise the amount that they initially set out to. And you can see that even with Kanan, I think their initial goal, initial fundraising goals in the US were 400 million. And ultimately they only raised 90 million. So if eBank does get approved, uh, they do get listed, approved to get listed. There's a possibility they may not get anywhere close to that 100 million fundraising goal. And if that's the case, there's not much they can do with that, that cap, like maybe 50 million in capital is just so significantly less than, than what other larger manufacturers have to work with out there. We'll be relying on you to keep tabs on that process. I'm sure over this next year, there'll be others uh, coming on board, especially if Ebong manages to list successfully. I think that would be a green light for other companies, perhaps you know, on the sidelines. Yeah, I'm certainly rooting for eBay uh, to go public. Uh, kind of my own reasons, it gives me more to research, but it also gives a transparency into what exactly happens in the manufacturing industry. For sure. Matt, now I want to move on to the part of our conversation where our listeners can get to know you a bit more. So I'll start off with this question. What important truth about the crypto space or mining more specifically do you believe in that few might agree with you on? Uh, I think with crypto in general, I think lately we've been hearing a lot of speculation that institutional investors are jumping in. You, you hear that uh, Paul Tudor Jones and his fund uh, was buying Bitcoin, op- uh, was it Futures? I think it was. Um, but in my opinion, uh, I, I just don't see it. I don't see institutional investors jumping in just yet. I, I think there's some some headwinds and some some growing pains that Bitcoin Bitcoin and the crypto ecosystem have to go through first. Um, so I, I'm a little skeptical in that sense. I think they're just all waiting on your research before jumping in, Matt. Exactly. <laughs> I agree. So the more you produce, the more you write, then the faster they'll come in to this space. <laughs> um, and as always, I like to end our time together with a round of rapid fire, but kind of unlike what I've done with other guests, I want to make this rapid fire round about LA, since we're both from LA, at least you're living there now. So I'm going to fire off some questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Implementation of the Hyperloop from LA to SF, bullish or bearish? 
bullish. Elon Musk's boring company to solve LA's terrible traffic. Bullish or bearish? Bearish. Who's making it further in the playoffs? Lakers or Clippers? I'm rooting for the Clippers. Oh, you're a Clippers fan. Yeah, I think they, they got a more ra- well-rounded team. And uh, Kawhi's my guy. So, yeah, I'd be rooting for the, the Clippers for sure. All right. For the beach scene, Santa Monica or Santa Barbara? Santa Monica. For burgers, In-N-Out or Shake Shack? I've actually never been to Shake Shack. So I guess by default. Really? Yeah. We'll have to get you out to somewhere that does have Shake Shack. What excites you going forward about the crypto industry? What would you love to see happen over the next year? I've seen like an explosion in terms of just how much research is out there. When I came in maybe a year ago to crypto, there really wasn't too much research or sell-side research companies doing deep dives and in, in crypto companies. I think we're seeing a bunch of crypto research firms pop up, in it, but there's still quite a bit of room for growth. Yeah, I agree with you there. And Matt, lastly, how can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about your work at Coindesk? Uh, you can message me on Twitter, underscore Matt Yamamoto. You can visit my author tab on Coindesk.com. Great. Matt, appreciate you coming on the Crypto Unstacked podcast. Thanks so much for the inside scoop on your research and really looking forward to reading your work in the future and hope to catch up with you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes. And connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambo. That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.